And now hear God's holy word from John chapter 14 on this fifth Sunday of the Easter season as we move through various resurrection themes and the blessings uh, that the Savior bought for us through his death and resurrection. So now hear from God's holy word, John chapter 14, Jesus speaking. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the words of our Savior who has done this amazing work for us, that we might have our abode, our dwelling place with you forever. And so, Father, fill me with your spirit that I might articulate these things clearly, open our ears and open our minds and open our hearts to receive them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. After I read through this text several times at the beginning of the week, one phrase here reminded me of many of the songs I sang in church growing up as a child. And so I picked up the hymnal, the old gospel hymnal that I grew up with and started flipping through it. And just after a few pages, it stirred within me a great gratitude for our reformed musical heritage that we together sing primarily psalms and we sing a great many hymns based on the psalms and many other hymns that plumb the depths of the riches of the, the, the truths of scripture, the, the rich biblical language and also soars to the heights of praise for a sovereign God. So these hymns that I was flipping through and looking at, these gospel songs serve as a stark contrast to what I've been used to these last few decades. Those gospel songs that came out of the Second Great Awakening and the, from the middle of the 1800s through the early 1900s, they seem to aim for something very different than what we're used to singing about and the, the songs that we use to give body and shape to our praise. Um, they, they tend to be very uh, theologically inconsistent. One very popular song that I grew up with say, has the phrase, they searched through heaven and found a savior. You may know which one I'm talking about. We sing that all the time, but what does that mean? They searched through heaven and found a savior as if the second person of the Trinity were not already prepared to come and give himself for, for our sins. They are poetically weak and they, they're fairly narrow thematically. Many are focused on conversion. They're addressed to the to the sinner. There's an entire section of songs about mother, which I love mama. Today's Mother's Day, and I've already said happy Mother's Day. I trust you know how much I love mothers, but I can't imagine singing praises to mother on the Lord's Day in worship. And then a great majority also seems to be taken up with a certain vision of heaven that leaves out any hope of a future bodily resurrection. Heaven is the end. Heaven is uh, the eternal home, and it, and it leaves out the further development of the resurrection. Our gospel reading this morning has a phrase, just a fragment of a verse, out of which an entire imaginary perspective on heaven has been fabricated and perpetuated because it's been widely misunderstood. Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. And the writers of gospel songs took off on that 
and embedded a certain interpretation of that into the collective consciousness of the Western church. So you might have grown up with some of these songs that I'm talking about, like Mansion Over the Hilltop and Just Build My Mansion Next Door to Jesus, which paint the picture that when we go to heaven, What's waiting for us is a really big house, maybe like a southern plantation. You know, we'll all be sitting on our porches drinking mint juleps uh, for eternity. Uh, There's other songs like When We All Get to Heaven and I Want to Know More About My Lord. I'll mention mansions as well. The heavenly hope, the expectation, at least a significant part of that means that I'm going to get a really big house and I want to be sure that I get my, my mansion. But when we turn to the scriptures and we look at those places in the scriptures where we get glimpses of heaven in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in Revelation, nobody's handing out keys to mansions. There's no angelic real estate agent setting you up with your own Biltmore in heaven. And and in fact, that would be really strange and out of place when you think about it. Because remember, once again, heaven is not the end of our story. We're promised a bodily resurrection and resurrection life on a restored earth at the end of things. So, so heaven is not the final stop on our journey and it doesn't make sense that we would set up our house there. So what is Jesus referring to in John 14 and what is this promise that he is making? Well, we're gonna work our way toward that answer but I'll give you a hint up front. What Jesus is promising here is something that is way better than any castle or any estate. And and in fact, Jesus is not talking about heaven at all, but about a house that he is building for his people. This instruction in John 14 comes in the upper room. He's just led them through the Last Supper. And beginning that very night, Jesus is going to go to work to establish a house through his suffering on the cross, through his death and resurrection, through his ascension and then outpouring of his spirit, all of these are steps by which he is building a house. And that house is going to be the glorious place where both heaven and earth meet, where there's communion and fellowship in the life of the triune God. That is what he is aiming for and that that is what he has promised. So let's see how he unfolds this promise. As he meets with them on the very same evening where he's later arrested. The disciples, after, after the supper, they're very distraught. They're fearful. They're anxious. They know where all of this is headed. They can, they can see the danger that they're in just by being in Jerusalem at this time. And that they know that Jesus is on a collision course with the Jews, with Pilate, with Herod. Put yourself in their place. Judas has just left to do who knows what after Jesus said something about somebody betraying him. Judas gets up and leaves. Peter then made a bold proclamation. Jesus, I'll follow you to the death. And Jesus looked Peter in the eye and said, Peter, before the rooster crows three times tomorrow, you're gonna, you're gonna deny me three times. Before the rooster crows, you're gonna deny me. There's a lot of confusion and consternation. Jesus knows that their hearts are troubled. He knows that they're not understanding what is happening and that he, they're not ready for any of this, which is why he begins the way he does in chapter 14 with verse one, let not your heart be troubled. He says that up front because he knows their heart is troubled. They're full of fear, fear of the unknown, fear of suffering and fear of death. But he's telling them that in spite of this, And in spite of the things that they may hear and see over the next several hours, 
and over the next few days, and even over the next coming years, no matter what they see or hear, no matter what, they must not lose heart. They must not lose hope. No matter what happens to you, do not lose hope. Because he knows from their perspective, it's all going to seem very scary. Indeed, they were living in the last days. The world that they knew was over. Jesus is bringing in a new heavens and a new earth. The old world that was centered around Jerusalem and centered around the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood and the old covenant feast days and the purifications and the rituals, that world is going to end up folded up and the world on the other side of this resurrection is going to be a new world. The, the, the world on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus is a new world. And in his ascension, Jesus is going to be given authority over all the nations. And with his people, he's going to create a new and more glorious temple, a new spiritual house that's going to be a living temple made of people, which has been God's purpose all along. His purpose all along is to make a house of people. When we studied First and Second Samuel several months ago, we kept coming back to this point that the true tabernacle was always the people. The people are the house of God. David had to get the spiritual temple in order. He had to get the spiritual temple arranged in an orderly manner before the architectural temple could be built by his son Solomon. That's a big theme in Samuel. And not only in Samuel, but throughout the Old Testament, the people are the house which bear the name of Yahweh. They are the house for his name. Now, temporarily, at various points in history, there is a physical house which was a reflection of the heavenly courts of God, pointing to the reality of our communion and our drawing near to him. But, but ultimately, the goal is for Jesus to build this new house which is not tied to one specific geographical place, not in one nation, but is a spiritual living house that covers the whole earth. Therefore, in order for that to become a reality and for that, in order for that new house to be built, the old house has to come down. And the final verdict on that old house is declared when the temple comes down and not one stone is left on the other. So, so now it's impossible to hold on to that old house. You can't be connected to that old world anymore. It's gone. It's done. It's over with. You can't do the sacrifices. You can't celebrate the old calendar, Passover, or Feast of Tabernacles. You can't have a priesthood. The diet is gone. The purifications are gone. It's all behind us. There's no way to stay in that old house of the old world. So here in the upper room, Jesus is preparing his disciples to enter that new house, to go into that new world. And he's promising them that while all kinds of things that they're used to are falling apart, in the midst of this, they do not lack a dwelling place. They have a house, which is in fact his father's house. And that house has plenty of rooms and they're not going to be left homeless at all. Let's look at that word mansion for just a minute. Jesus says, in my father's house are many mansions in, in verse two. If you have the ESV and you're reading along, it says many rooms, but we're used to the King James English where it says, it says mansions. Well, the Greek word that John wrote there is mone. If we transliterate it into English, it would be M-O-N-E. Uh, Mone is an abode, a smaller living space within a larger structure, like an apartment would be a mone, a, a hotel room would be a, would be a mone. It's the root word, mone is the root word for our word mansion, so this isn't a mistranslation to call it a mansion, but in 1611 English, mansion 
didn't mean palace. Mansion didn't mean big estate. It meant a smaller dwelling place inside a larger building. In my father's house are many rooms. In a big house, there are many smaller rooms, you see. And even, even in England today, a mansion uh, is an apartment. You, you might have an apartment building called Nottingham Mansions, for example. They have different words for things over there. So, you know, a truck is a lorry, an elevator is a lift, and an apartment is a mansion to them. But you get the idea that a mansion doesn't mean luxury, it means dwelling place, it means abode. And it's the same word that Jesus uses over in chapter uh, 14, verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Well, it's the very same word that's translated mansion earlier. In chapter 15, verse 4, Jesus uses the verb form of the same word. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. This is the verb form of abode. This is abide. So throughout these verses, Jesus has quite a lot to say about his abiding with his people and their abiding with him and, and his abiding in and with his father. This is critical for them to know, for the disciples to know at this point, because in many ways, they're about to be homeless. They're about to be scattered. They're about to be cut off. They're about to be cast out. In order for them to prepare for all that is coming and all the ways they're going to be forced out of places and forced out of synagogues and forced out of relationships and forced out of houses, abodes that they're used to dwelling in, Jesus, before this begins, he reinforces their standing with the Father. No matter what else happens, you have a home, you have a place with him. You may be made to feel like an outsider and a vagabond. You may be made to feel like you don't know anything, you don't know anybody. But with my Father, you will always have a place. You are known and made welcome by the triune God. And so Jesus says, I'm going to see to it that you have a home with him and that you abide in his house. So this father's house that Jesus speaks of is not a building made with hands. The father's house that Jesus speaks of is not the world beyond the grave. The house that Jesus prepares is the new dwelling place. It's the new temple of God in the spirit, which is founded upon the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus spoke this way back in John chapter two, uh, after the cleansing of the temple. The Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus said. You see, his body is our temple. His body is our, our dwelling place. His body, the church, is our environment. It's our abode with him. And our abiding in his life is made possible by his resurrection. There he wraps up the theme of his body, the temple, and resurrection there in just a few verses. And, and Paul talks about the very same uh, house over in Ephesians chapter 2. Here from uh, Ephesians 2.19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're not, you're not outcasts. You're not vagabonds. But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit." 
This is what Jesus is referring to here, this very same house. And, and then, of course, in our epistle reading this morning, John read from uh, 1 Peter 2. Now, I hear this very same language, and I'm just going to read a couple of the verses that John read just a few minutes ago. Now, we come to him as a living stone, uh, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. Over and over and over, we hear these references to the house that Jesus promises here that he is working to prepare. Jesus is telling his men, I am about to go work on this house for you, and I'm going to build this house on my crucifixion, my burial, my resurrection, my ascension, my pouring out of my spirit. This is the place that Jesus has worked to prepare. Jesus is not promising here to go ahead and fix up heaven for us. That's, that's not what he, you know, go to heaven and get us a room ready. Heaven's already fixed up. Moreover, Jesus isn't referring to heaven as his father's house here. When, when he says, my father's house has many mansions, he's not calling heaven his father's house. The temple is what, he's always referred to the temple as his father's house. He did it when he was 12, didn't he? When Mary and Joseph come and find him, where were you? Well, I've where do you think I've been? I've been in my father's house. When he cleanses the temple, it's zeal for his father's house that uh, consumed him. So the temple has always been his father's house. And now what he's telling his apostles is, is that he's making a way for a new spiritual house to be built. The place where we commune with the living God, where we have life and fellowship and blessing and salvation. After all, what is, what is salvation? Salvation means fellowship and communion with the living God. And it's here in the church. It is here in this house that is founded upon the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus that we have fulfillment of the ancient promises of God that he will be our God and we will be his people. That wherever he is, that's where we will be also. That we will be with him forever. His house is our house. His abode is our abode. This is what Jesus tells his men, his friends, that he's doing. And he says, you know the way I'm going. You know what I'm up to here. And then, and then Thomas speaks up and says, um, Lord, no, actually, we don't know what you're doing. We don't know the way. We don't, we don't get it. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. If you had known, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Thomas objects. We don't know the way you're going. We don't know how to follow you. And Jesus says to Thomas, I, Thomas, I am the way. Remember last week we saw where he said, I am the way to the sheepfold. And oh, by the way, I'm also the door. Here he says, not only do I know the way, but I am the way. Not only am I going the way, but I am the way. So if you want to come live in this house that I'm building, this spiritual house, if you want to have the salvation that comes from abiding in this house, if you want to be delivered from death and have life, you have to come through me. I am the way, he says. I am the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's a definite article in front of each one of those words, the way, the truth, the life. This is a pretty bold statement. Again, like the one we read last week where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Everybody else is a thief or robber. I'm the good shepherd. Jesus makes another claim to exclusivity here. 
Jesus says, I am the way, because he knew that there would be times in history where churches would stop believing this. He knew that there would be a generation of Christians who have grown to be so sophisticated and so tolerant, who are so intellectual and so more, much more compassionate and wise in the ways of the world, that they really know better than Jesus, that there are other ways to the Father. There are other ways to communion with him right? I mean, there are so many ways because God is love and he doesn't condemn anybody. He doesn't judge anyway. And so you can come worship him in any way you please. You can call him anything you like. You can call him Allah or Buddha or Krishna or Elvis or whatever you want to call him. It doesn't matter because there's not just one way. Come on, stop being so narrow-minded. Why, why do you have to act like a backwoods hillbilly and say that Jesus is the only way? I mean, who would believe such a thing in 2020? And see, that's the message that we get. And that's the, that's the assault on the truth that comes to us all the time. We're living in this generation of Christians who really don't believe what Jesus says here. You understand that that's not the Christian faith. That's paganism. Pick out any pagan in history and that's exactly what they believe. Whoever God is must be so tolerant and so undemanding that it really just doesn't matter how we come to him and what we call him and the way. If you believe that, and if you teach that, you are in fact rejecting the one exclusive way to the Father and the way into the Father's house. You're not walking in light. You are very much walking in darkness. Jesus tells Thomas, I am the way. If you want to know the way, Thomas, you must follow me. I will show you the way to the Father. I will bring you into his fellowship. What other way have you worked out that you're going to get your sins forgiven? I'll wait while you come up with an answer. You got another plan? Tell me what that is. What other way do you have? What other way have you found that you're going to have victory over death and the grave? How else are you going to have peace with God in such a way that you know that God is pleased with you? Have you got an answer? Have you got another way? No, the only way is through the work of Jesus who died for your sins. There is no other way. Not only that, Jesus says, but he is the truth. All truth is in him. He is truth incarnate. There's no truth that's not founded in him. He created all truth. He sustains all truth. So anything that contradicts him is a lie. You can know that and you can count on that. Everyone who contradicts Jesus is a liar. So if someone's opinion or philosophy of life or view of the world contradicts the Bible, they're out of touch. They're believing lies. Do you understand that everyone who does not submit themselves to this Savior and believes in his word and the truth of his word, everyone who does not believe him is walking in darkness? Do you, do you trust people who walk in darkness to tell you the truth? Why would you do that? Jesus is the truth. His word is the truth. And that's the claim that he's making. And not only that, on top of this, he is the life. There's no life outside of him. He is before all things and in him all things consist. He is the only one who is able to give you life. If you aren't in union with him, abiding in him, obeying him and trusting him and loving him, you do not have life. And you're not gonna live forever. You're gonna die and go to hell apart from the life that is exclusively in Jesus. But with him, you have the life of his resurrection, the power of his re resurrection imparted to you. Romans 8, which I love, says the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Do you get that? The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you if you have union with Christ. 
What does that mean? Well, what challenge or sin or worry or habit or struggle are you up against? Would the solution to that thing be a bigger miracle than raising Jesus from the dead? That same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is your resource for any habit, sin, worry, challenge, or struggle that you're up against. You see, you have life and you have all the resources you need to be pleasing to God in all things. The claim that Jesus is making here is that there's no possibility of having communion with the Father except through Jesus. There's no other way. And he's, he's comforting his disciples with this truth. He's leaving them that very night so that he can go do the work that would secure their fellowship with the Father so that their dwelling place would always be with him no matter what. So even as they live between worlds, that they would be men who walk by these foundational principles. And whatever chaos, whatever crazy thing, whatever persecution, accusation, tribulation, whatever storms beat and pound on them, they know to the core of their being that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and that their life is in him. He is their abode. He is their environment. He is their address. And so likewise, Jesus says to us through the words of these scriptures, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. I know it looks like everything's falling apart. I know you've had to put up with a lot. I know things are really crazy right now. I know it feels like everything's unraveling. Don't despair. Remember who you are. Jesus says, remember who I am. It may feel like a lot of things are up for grabs and society feels very fluid and unstable, but that is not the time to go off the rails and act like everything is up for debate. What we do in these times is press into the things we know to be true. We want to come out of this better and stronger and more unified in the spirit than we ever were before. And the way to do that is to become more and more confident in Jesus, who is the way even as we're bombarded with strategies of living and belief systems and worldviews that don't imitate Jesus, they don't follow his way, we're bold to say no. No, Jesus is the truth. That we become even clearer, crystal clear in the proclamation that Jesus is the truth. If anyone disagrees with him, then they're a liar and we don't put confidence in them. And that he is the life. That if you trust in him, and if you're united to him by faith, Jesus has delivered you from death. Death has lost all of its sting. We're not, we're, death has no power over us. You have life, which means you have communion with the living God and you dwell in his house. That's the promise of the Savior. Press into that and hold on to it as the core of your being, as the core of your identity. Let's pray. Father, we pray that indeed we would always remember and always be clear on the exclusivity of the, of the claims of our Savior Jesus. We praise you that there are not more than one way. We praise you that there are not many truths that we have to figure out and sort through, that there are other ways to life and other ways to please you and to have our abode with you. There is one way and you have revealed him to us and you have given him to us and we love him. And Father, we pray that you would cause us to walk in the confidence of these things and the assurance of these things all of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.